Beloved congregation, have you ever asked yourself why does the New Testament begin with a genealogy? Why do we have a listing of 42 generations? Why is that the opening statement of the New Testament? There's a very profound and important reason for this. Because ultimately, what that genealogy of 42 generations is, is a review of the entire Old Testament in terms of God's covenant faithfulness. Because what had God promised to Abraham when he instituted the sacrament of circumcision in Genesis 17? He said, Abraham, I will be your God and the God of your seed. And I will do this from generation to generation. In the same chapter, he says, I will be Isaac's God. And he was Jacob's God. And so often, the Lord is referred to in the Bible as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which wonderfully reveals God's character, which reveals who he is that he is a covenant-keeping God from generation to generation to generation, the God of his people and of their seed. And so what that opening genealogy of Matthew 1 declares is that God kept his word. In spite of all that happened in the Old Testament, all the trials, all the tribulations, all the ways in which God's covenant people, the people of Israel, had been so unfaithful to him, in spite of their idolatry, nevertheless, God kept his word. Because ultimately, that covenant, the endurance of that covenant, the certainty of that covenant, ultimately does not depend on us. God will see to it that as long as the world stands, his covenant faithfulness will be affirmed over and over again. We just read it from the law. We read it every Sunday. Do we ever stop to think about it? Where it says that his love and his mercy will be to thousands, thousands. And actually, it's clear in the Hebrew, it means thousands of generations. You know what that means? Thousands of generations. Recently I read a, a calculation that at most we are 250 generations removed from Noah. So when it talks about thousands of generations, that simply spans the entire history of this world. And in spite of all that happened, at the end of those 42 generations, the seed is born, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's all about him. That's why God kept his word, because Jesus had to be born. And because Jesus has been born, that, that's why he will continue to keep his word. He will continue to build his church from generation to generation. And we, as I've said here before, we ourselves are the living proof of that covenant faithfulness. However, that being said, there is a means there is a method that God has prescribed in his word whereby he perpetuates his church from generation to generation. A method whereby his truth is passed on from generation to generation. And that's the obligation that we have as parents. The obligation that we have as a church to pass on to the next generation, the essential truths of God's Word. And as parents, we made that promise. Perhaps some of you repeatedly. We made a vow 
before God and his church that we would do everything in our power to raise our children in the fear of his name. And that obligation, that duty, is powerfully expressed for us in Psalm 78, verses 4 through 7. So let's read the Word of God again as we will focus on this passage, also in light of the fact that today marks the beginning of a new instructional season. Obviously, this doesn't just apply to our instructional season. What we're going to consider this morning is always true. And so what is our text here? And that should be, by the grace of God, that should be your and my confession. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. For He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God and keep his commandments. And so in this passage, we have God's command to parents and by extension to Christian school teachers and by extension to office bearers, God's command to instruct our children. And again, boys and girls, you that know how to read, keep your Bibles open, and we will see where my points come from. I want you to see that. First of all, the substance of this duty. That, what do I mean by this? That means, what is it that we have to teach our children? Well, that's clearly spelled out for us. We have three things. We have to teach them the praises of the Lord, the strength of the Lord, and the wonderful works that He has done. That's what we have to teach them. That's the substance of this duty. Secondly, the generational nature of this duty. We see that remarkably in verses 5 and 6, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that a generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, which should arise and declare them to their children. So the generational nature of this duty, God's will, that the teaching about Him, His praises, His strength, His wonderful works, that that be passed on to the generations that follow. And thirdly, the purpose of this duty, powerfully articulated in verse 7, that, I mean that's a, a word that introduces a purpose. Why, why, why must we do this? So that our children, the following generations, might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God and keep His commandments. So God's command to parents to instruct their children, the substance, the generational nature, and the purpose of this duty. Most likely, the psalm was composed after King Abijah of the two, uh, the, 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 the kingdom of the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, when he achieved a remarkable military victory over the ten tribes who were ruled at that time by Jeroboam. You can read about this in 2 Chronicles 13, verse 13 through 18. It was a remarkable victory. Because Abijah and Judah were outnumbered. But God arose and by his might put all his enemies to flight with shame and consternation. And now Asaph, probably on behalf of David, Asaph, then and inspired by the Holy Spirit, recorded this psalm. Because he recognized that what God had done for his people, what God had done for Judah was a remarkable demonstration of who he is. And Asaph, moved by the Spirit, realized that this was a golden opportunity to tell a new generation 
what God has done, He has done for us in the past. This is our God. This is the God who, in generations before us, has also done remarkable and great works for us. And so he says, I will open my mouth in the parable, and I will utter dark sayings of old. And what that simply means is that words of wisdom that have a very deep and profound meaning. The Dutch Bible uses the word mysteries. And I think of 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, great is the mystery of godliness. God manifest in the flesh. And so Asaph is talking about the essential truths of God's Word, which are deep truths of God's Word, and yet which are glorious truth. And when he says, I will utter, it is as if you can sense that Asaph's heart is full of matter, full of matter. His heart, as it were, spills over. And then he says, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. So he begins by saying, everything that I know, everything I know about God, everything I know about His wonderful works, I know because my Father told me. My Father instructed me. That's why I know it actually would be a very good exercise for you today with your families, is to read through that entire psalm. Because Psalm 78 is one of those what we call the history psalms. There are several, okay? So you have Psalm 78, Psalm 105, 106, and 107, and also Psalm 136. And in those psalms we have a review of Israel's history. And so it is with Psalm 78. And Psalm 78 really chronicles Israel's history from the moment they were delivered from Egypt all the way to the reign of King David. A congregation, you can't help but notice when you read that psalm in its entirety that what stands out is God's abiding faithfulness for the people of Israel. But what also stands out their sinfulness, their foolishness, their their tendency time and again to depart from Him, and then to see that in spite of their foolishness, how God time and again brings them back to Himself. So it's a sad commentary on Israel's unfaithfulness, but it's an amazing commentary on God's faithfulness. And so Asaph is full of matter. He says, so that which I have heard and that which I may know, because my Father has told me, we must now do the same and tell our children. Think about that for a moment. How indebted we are today, I, you, how indebted we are to previous generations, were it not for the loving commitment of previous generations, our place would probably not be here. But here we are. And precisely because God has seen to it that His truth, His gospel has been communicated to us, we now have an obligation to communicate that truth to the generations that follow In Psalm 68 it says, God gave the word, and great was the company of them that published it. That's an important verse, congregation. God gave the word. So that word that God has given to our fathers has been his sovereign gift to them. And that word which we may have is God's sovereign gift to us. And of course, those words really have a a dual meaning, because God has given us His written Word, the Bible, and He has given us the living Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. But then you see what follows. It says, and great was the company of them that published it. So when God gives us His Word, 
He does so with the intent that we, in turn, would be the publishers of that word to yet another generation. And so what are we? Called to teach our children. It's a powerful, powerful statement here, congregation. It says we are to teach them, first of all, the praises of the Lord. And of course, hopefully you have seen that that wonderful covenant name of God just stands out again. That glorious name, L-O-R-D, in capital letters. That covenant name of God. That name that expresses who He is. That gospel name. This is the gospel name of God. And so Asaph says, we must tell our children about that God We must teach them who this God is. We must tell them His praises. And what the word praises here simply means that which is worthy of being praised. And what is worthy of being praised? Well, His perfections, God's perfections, God's attributes. And so what a task we have as fathers, what a wonderful task God has given us to teach our children as early as we possibly can to teach them about this great and glorious God who has created them not only, but a God in whose name they have been baptized, a God who has written His name on their young foreheads. The God who has sworn at their baptism, I am willing to be the God also of this child. That's our obligation as fathers to acquaint our children with that God. And I would encourage you always when you do that to turn to Exodus 34 verse 6 and 7. That that critical foundational text of the Old Testament. Those wonderful words, let's turn there again. We cannot turn there often enough. The prophets and the psalmists, they turn to this passage over and over again in the Old Testament. Because there, the Lord spells out for us what those praises are. He spells out for us who He is. He gives us this wonderful listing of His perfections. And the Lord passed by before Him and proclaimed... Remember, Moses had said, Lord, show me thy glory. And God said, I will show you my glory. And here he says, the Lord, the Lord God. He repeats that wonderful name twice. That's how important it is. Merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands of generations. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Fathers, here's your lesson plan. This is it. This is your lesson plan. And so spend the time and use every God-given opportunity to teach your children these praises of Jehovah. To teach them who He is. Talk about to your children about what it means that God is merciful. Tell them what it means that he is gracious. Tell them what it means that he's long-suffering. That he's abundant in goodness and truth. That he keeps his word. That he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. What a wonderful lesson plan. And the young parents among us, you have the enormous advantage that there there are so many good materials available today that will assist you in doing that at a very early age. There are very simple publications that focus on the character, on the attributes of God. But of course, and we need to move on, ultimately, all of that, that's part of our teaching, All of that has to be connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what we could say about Christ, Christ is God's mercy in the flesh. Christ is God's grace in the flesh. Christ is God's abundant goodness in the flesh. Christ is the ultimate revelation of God's truth. In Him, 
God keeps mercy. In him, God forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. So what that means is this. We, when we teach our children who God is, we must teach them that we can only know God as he has revealed himself in his Son. Apart from Christ, God is not knowable. It's in him that God has revealed himself. It's in him that God has opened up his heart to us in his word. And so we have to teach our children that all that the Bible teaches about God's character all comes together in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me use a simple example for you, boys and girls. We could say that the Lord Jesus is God's prism. Now, the older ones among us may know what a prism is. Perhaps you've had a science lesson where your teacher showed you what a prism does. So what is a prism? Prism is a piece of glass, uniquely shaped, that if you let light shine on it, out come the colors of the rainbow. What a prism does, it, it simply reveals something that otherwise we could not see. And so the light that shines here in this sanctuary, the, the light that shines from the sun, contains all seven colors that we see in the rainbow. And once in a while we see it. And there has been a storm. And when the light of the sun shines on the cloud and every single raindrop in that cloud functions as a prism and there we see this magnificent display of what we otherwise would not see. So we could say that in Christ becomes visible what we otherwise would not know. In Christ, God reveals to us the full spectrum of who he is. He unveils to us his praises. And so as early as you can, you must connect everything in the Bible to the Lord Jesus. And do so, of course, at a level that your child can understand. Secondly, it says we are to show forth to the generation to come, we are to show his strength. We are to show his might. And of course, God had just demonstrated that might by giving a remarkable deliverance to Abijah and to the kingdom of Judah. But that word here especially refers to the fact that he is a God who is mighty to save. And you see, when you teach your children about God's greatness, about his wonderful perfections, you, of course, at some point have to talk about the fact that we have sinned against that God, that we are sinners, that by nature we have no desire to know this God, that by nature we are born in sin with hearts that are hostile to God and have no desire after the knowledge of his ways. And how encouraging it is for us as parents that we may also speak to our children about his strength, that he is a God, this great and glorious God is a God who is mighty to save. Psalm 89 verse 19, I have laid help upon one that is mighty. And so as early as you can, you need to teach your children that they need a savior. You need to, you need to teach your children that they need the Lord Jesus to save them from their sins. You need to teach your children that Christ is so willing and able to be the Savior also of children. We considered that a while ago when Jesus himself said, suffer the little children to come to me, compel them to come to me, urge them to come to me, encourage them to come to me. Because obviously, when Jesus says that, that means that he will in no wise cast them out. And so as parents, especially as fathers, ah, we must give our children a biblical view of God's character. We must teach them who God is in Christ. And to assist us in this, we must also focus on the wonderful works that he has done. It's remarkable 
how many of God's works have been recorded in Scripture. That's how the Bible begins. The entire first chapter of the Bible is a record of the wonderful works of God when he created the world out of nothing and spoke the world into existence. But Asaph was also thinking about the wonderful works that God had done for them in their history. And again, as you read Psalm 78 and also the other history psalms, 105, 106, 107, and even 136, you see this review of God's wonderful works that he did for them. Think of their amazing deliverance out of Egypt, making a way for them in the Red Sea. How God cared for them in the wilderness, how he dwelt among them. How he gave the manna from heaven and water from the rock to sustain them in the midst of the wilderness. And why is it so important for us also to focus not only on the character of God and on his strength, but also on his works? Because also by means of his works, by means of his deeds, God reveals himself to us. So there's a very, very foundational truth that you may want to write down, and I want you to remember. God does what he does because he is who he is. Let me repeat that. God does what he does because he is who he is. So God's works, his actions, never contradict who he is. Sadly, that's not true for us. That's why we have a common saying, that actions speak louder than words. And often our actions contradict what we actually profess. But not so with God. All of his works, all of his wonderful works are an affirmation. And that's why it's so important, as early as we can, to teach our children the wonderful stories of the Bible, to teach them the wonderful works, and as they get older, to teach them church history, to talk about God's wonderful works in history. Psalm 48, verse 30, we sing it almost every Sunday. Mark ye well her bulwark, consider her palaces, consider all that's happened, that you may tell it to the generation following. Psalm 45, verse 4, one generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. I need to wrap this up because there's so much here. It could, also be, it could actually be, it could be argued here that this is a, a Trinitarian statement. We could argue that we are to teach them the praises of the Father, the strength of the Son, and the wonderful works of the Holy Spirit, all together as an inseparable package. And of course, for us as families, the primary arena where we must do that is when we gather our families for family worship. And of course, that's another topic, and I, I'm going to be purposely very brief about this because... We're privileged this week to have Dr. Beeky come and teach us about family worship. So I want to encourage you to be there on Wednesday. And it's very timely that he would do that topic as a follow-up of what I'm saying here today. But family worship congregation is so essential to the well-being of a Christian family. That has to be a non-negotiable commitment. And as Dr. Beeky will explain to us, it doesn't have to be complicated. So basically, family worship consists of Bible reading, singing God's praises, and prayer. These three components need to be part of family worship. Because congregation, history has proven that families who faithfully engage in this experience God's blessing. It is true. We cannot save our children. That's God's work. But you see what God has promised to his people, if you obey my precepts, right? That's what it says in verse 5. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law. This is God's precept. This is God's method. 
When you obey my method, when you obey my precepts, and when you teach your children about my praises and about my strength and about my wonderful works, I am pleased to use your efforts to accomplish what you cannot accomplish. And again, how many of us are not the living proofs of that? So there, there again you see the connection between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. So it's always this way, congregation. Listen carefully. When we take our responsibility seriously, God works sovereignly. That's how it works. Not the other way around. We must take our responsibility seriously, also in teaching and instructing our children. And when we take that responsibility seriously, and we engage in it prayerfully, and we engage in it faithfully, God is pleased for His namesake to honor that faithful instruction, that teaching from His Word to the hearts of our children. And that's why, and I hope that we can grow beyond that, that's why, if we do so prayerfully, if as soon as possible we point our children to the Lord Jesus, we encourage our children to go to Him for the salvation of their souls, we should expect to see God's work, His saving work, even in our children. Too often, the idea lodges in our mind that conversion, coming to faith in Christ, is, is something for adults. No, based on God's promises, we should expect the Lord to work in our children. As you know, Wilhelmus of Brackel said about himself, and he could not remember a time in his life that he did not love the Lord Jesus. He feared him from his youth. And there are, of course, other examples in the Bible. That brings us to our second point, namely the generational nature of this duty. Because that's God's method, you see. God remembers his covenant from generation to generation. So, boys and girls, what do we mean by covenant? What does that word mean? That's a very important word here also in this sermon. So let me keep it very simple for you. When the Bible reveals to us that God is a covenant God, that means that it is God's desire to bring sinners like you and me, to bring us into a love relationship with himself. That's his desire. That's his good pleasure. That's how he made us in Adam. That's why he gave his son, the Lord Jesus, to bring us into a love relationship relationship with himself. And so the best example I can give to you of what we mean by covenant is that your mom and dad are married. That's a covenant relationship. That's a love relationship. Your mom and dad are bound together in this very special union which we call marriage. But also your relationship to your parents is a love relationship. Your parents are connected to you, and you are connected to your parents in a very special relationship. That's what's meant by the word covenant. And that's what God is doing all through history. That's why the New Testament begins with a review of God's covenant dealings in the Old Testament. This is who God is. And so Matthew 1 begins with this profound statement that God has kept His word. He is a covenant God. That's why we have His covenant promise. I will be your God and the God of your seed. In other words, God is saying, as also in baptism, not only have I established a relationship with you, but I will do it with your seed. I will do this in the next generation. That's the wonderful truth that is articulated visibly every time baptism is administered. That's why the sacrament of baptism can be such a great encouragement to us as parents and, and as grandparents when we witness firsthand that God declares even visibly, I will keep my word also in this generation. So his covenant promise, I will be their God, your God and the God of your seed. His covenant method 
however, is, as we will see, from generation to generation. And in each generation, we, God's covenant people, we who sovereignly have brought, been brought together as members of his covenant household, which is what the church is, our duty is to teach our children. We read it also from Deuteronomy 6, a very important passage also connected to family worship that really spells out for us what God expects us to do. And these words which I command you this day shall be in thine heart. That's where, first of all, as parents, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. If you read Deuteronomy 6 carefully, what God is really spelling out for parents there, he is saying, don't ever let any opportunity go to waste to teach your children my word. Think of opportunities. When you sit down, when you stand up, when you walk, wherever you go, always be conscious, looking for ways, looking for opportunities to teach your children who God is and to teach them his word. But what's remarkable about this passage so Deuteronomy 6 says, thou shalt teach them diligently. So what does that look like? How diligent should we be in teaching our children? So what verses 5 and 6 tell us is that what I teach my children should reach my great-grandchildren in undiluted form. Think about that. What I teach my children, what we teach our children today, should reach our great-grandchildren in undiluted form. Because look, there are four generations there, which commanded our fathers, generation number one, that they should make them, what is in verse four, known to their children, generation number two. That the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, generation number three who should arise and declare them to their children, generation number four. And you could even argue that we have five generations, because that's how Asa begins. He said, I am simply passing on to you. I am now teaching you what my father taught me. And so we see this generational sequence. But the point I'm trying to make, teaching our children can never be a casual thing. That requires investment, especially for us as fathers. We need to realize that we especially are designated by God as the teachers of our family, as the spiritual heads, the spiritual leaders of our family. And of course, we do that in cooperation with our wives, with the mothers who play a significant role. But you, fathers, you are by God designated to be the primary teacher of your household. And your teaching has to be so thorough. Your teaching has to be so consistent. Your teaching has to be so good that if you would live to see your great-grandchildren, that you would actually witness your great-grandchildren confessing the same truth that you taught your children. That's how diligent we have to be. That's why this cannot be a casual thing. In Joel 1 verse 3, we read this expressed again, very simply, write that text down and, and look, at, look it over again when you come home. Very simple. It says this, tell ye your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. There you have it. Pass on from generation to generation. So in other words, when we teach our children as parents and grandparents, not only is their spiritual well-being at stake, but the spiritual well-being of the generations that follow is at stake. That's how weighty this is. Because you see, it is God's method to build his church from generation to generation. And we as parents play a vital role in all of that. The Hebrew word for generation is the word that describes the link of a chain. So you have, all, you have seen a chain where, where one link is linked to the other one. 
And you know that a chain is only as good as its weakest link. You can have a wonderful chain if there's one weak link. The chain will break. That's always the threat that faces the church of God. That's why in the second commandment, God specifically warns the fathers. Because the first commandment tells us whom we must worship, God alone. But the second commandment tells us how we are to worship God. And very quickly, the second commandment simply teaches this. God is saying to Israel, you may not worship me according to your imagination. No graven images. But you must worship me according to my revelation. No imagination, but revelation. And then he says, God says that he will, I am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. The iniquity of the fathers. Iniquity here means the failure of the fathers. And so God is saying, if fathers fail to teach their children how they must worship me, if they fail to teach them who I am, my praises, my strength, and my wonderful works, my covenant judgment will rest on that family. And that covenant judgment will become manifest in the third and fourth generation. A congregation, I've lived long enough to have witnessed that in my lifetime. I remember families when I was younger where the parents were very unfaithful. And their great-grandchildren today are heathens. There's nothing left of it. How can you explain that 100 years ago, 90% of the population of the United States still went to church on Sunday, and now it's less than 50%. What's happened in those 100 years? Parents have failed in this task. And God's covenant judgment is manifesting itself more and more. I will visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and to the fourth generation. In Hosea 4 verse 6, solemn words, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of God, I will also forget thy children. Think about that. I will forget thy children. That's God's judgment. If we ignore him, if we forget him, if we fail to teach our children, there will be generational consequences. Oh, God forbid that that will be true of us. Because if we fail to train this generation, we bring upon us the blood of future generations. Listen to what Martha Luther, I'm going to read you a, a rather lengthy but important quote about this. Luther says this, Therefore, it is of the greatest importance for every married man to regard his child as nothing else but an eternal treasure God has commanded him to protect. On the day of judgment, he will be asked about his child and will have to give a most solemn account. For what do you think is the cause of the most horrible wailing and howling of those who will cry, Oh, blessed are the wombs! which have, born, have not borne children, and the breasts which have never suckled. There's not the slightest doubt that it's because they have failed to restore their children unto God from whom they received them to take care of them. Think about that. So Luther is saying the loudest wailing will be by those parents who disobeyed these precepts, who disregarded the well-being of their children, and who will be confronted with that the day of judgment. And see, when parents fail, then you will get the opposite of verse 7. When we fail to do this, then we end up with children who do not set their hope in God. Children who forget the works of God. And children who ignore His commandments. And we see the tragic, tragic results of that in an overwhelming way also in our very own land. You see, in that sense, congregation, the church is always one generation away from apostasy. 
One generation separates us from faithfulness and apostasy. And all through church history, when you see the decline of the church, there's always one generation that fails to do what God commands us to do. And the consequences are devastating and profound. That's why we have to be amazed that we are here today. We have to be amazed that God has sovereignly overruled everything and brought us to this place. And we now have the great task of committing to our children the truths of God's word so that it says here, and I need to wrap this up, but I think you can make the application. I've, I've done that all through the sermon, that they might set their hope in God. Ah, you see, you want to, your teaching about God should be such that it will encourage our children to put our hope in Him. We have to teach our children that this God in whose name you're baptized is a very gracious God, a God who is ready to forgive. And a God who will in no wise cast them out. Fathers, we are to be God's friend to our children. We are to speak well of God to our children. We are to give them a proper view of God's character and to encourage them to put their hope in God. Because you see, when they do, they will not forget His works. That's it. They will not forget His works. In Judges 2, verse 10, we read these solemn words. This is after Joshua dies. Listen carefully. Judges 2, verse 10. And there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. A generation that failed to do what God commands us in this passage. And you see... It is only children that, first of all, know the God in whose name they're baptized. They are the children who will be motivated to be keepers of his commandments. If we do not teach them who this God is, and if all we do is teach them commandments, all we do is teach them precepts, don't expect. At best, you will produce a legalist. At best. No, you see, that obedience has to flow out of this knowledge of God. This has to be a reflection of children who are putting their hope in God, for whom God has become the God of their salvation. They will be motivated to be keepers of His commandments. That's what it says in the law. And showing mercy unto thousands of them, thousands of generations that love me and keep my commandments. That order is so important that love me and keep my commandments. You see, that keeping of the commandments flows out of a love that we have for him. And so children who are not acquainted with God and his work will depart from his ways. And so, my dear congregation, this passage, with utmost clarity, gives us our marching orders. This passage, with utmost clarity, tells us what our, my obligation, our office bearers, the teachers of your children, your Christian school teachers, but most importantly, parents, it is your responsibility. This is what God commands us. Not only was it established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. No, this, is, this precept is for us today. And so we, would sit, we should sit down our children and say to them what Asaph said. And say to our children and grandchildren, we heard from our fathers. Our fathers, my father, my grandfather, made known to me the word of God. Now let me teach you the word of God. And you know, if God has glorified his grace in your life, tell them also about what he has done in your soul. Tell them how he has worked in you. That's so important. And so when we reflect on this, what parent would dare to say, 
that our performance is flawless. Then we have to say, Lord, if thou shouldst mark iniquity, also as parents, who then shall stand? But that was the wonder of God's grace. There is forgiveness. There is forgiveness also for parents. Also forgiveness for our failures and shortcomings. And then it's amazing that in spite of our weakness, in spite of our frailty, in spite of our inconsistency, in spite of our shortcomings, that God is nevertheless pleased to use our feeble efforts to advance his cause and to perpetuate his church. Oh, think of Augustine, a godly mother, John Newton, godly mothers, and yet both men initially rejected what they had learned. And yet it was not in vain. Ultimately, it did bear fruit. If we cast our bread upon the waters, we shall find it after many days. Train a child in the way that it must go. Not that it wants to go, but that it must go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. For how many of us has that not been true also in our life? And so parents, grandparents, teachers, let's open our mouths wide to this glorious God. Let's open our mouths wide to him and plead with him to give us the grace to do what he commands us to do because that's so wonderful about this God that he gives what he commands. And so open thy mouth wide for your children and for your grandchildren and ask Lord, give me the grace, give me the insight, give me the commitment, give me the consistency to teach my children the praises of the Lord, and his strength, and the wonderful works that he has done. Because God will fulfill that precious promise which we sang together from Psalm 22, verses 30 and 31. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. Listen to this. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born. And he has done this. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we give thee thanks for this clear and precise instruction from thy word. Lord, may we take this home with us. May we take it to heart. May we prayerfully wrestle with this and enable us and equip us to do what we are commanded to do. And so give us grace to teach our children thy praises, thy strength, and the wonderful works thou hast done. To teach our children how all of this comes together in Christ to teach our children who thou art in Christ, that by thy grace the fruit may be that also our children and grandchildren will put their hope in God and not forget his works and keep his commandments and bless the instruction that will begin today. Bless our teachers. Bless this time of instruction that the instruction given by the church may reaffirm what our children are also learning at home. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.